Section six of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three Men and Manners Part two Before closing this chapter, it may be interesting to mention the fact that, notwithstanding that every old Bradener was called by some pet nickname, and in many instances known by no other, they were always extremely sensitive to anything they considered approaching to ridicule. An amusing instance occurred some years since, when my friend, Mr. G. F. D. Preston, who was then interested in local sport came off braden and landed on the bowling green overlooking the estuary he had observed a stalk on the mud flats and turning to one of the thackers known as the braden stalk remarked there's a stalk on braden thacker made no remark but stared at mr preston who thinking he did not quite understand him, repeated the information. Thacker coloured up, and, turning on his heel, walked away, to my friend's amazement, who shortly after, to his great amusement, remembered the coincidence of names. "'Had it been any one but a gentleman gunner?' said Thacker to a chum. "'Well!' by which remark it was to be inferred the Bradener would have found his tongue with a vengeance, for he had a rich and varied vocabulary at hand, and could on occasion surprise even those who knew him best. A gossip with one other ancient Bradener still living, but who is feeble and exceedingly deaf, may be mentioned jack gibbs recently sat by my fireside and made himself very much at home sixty year ago said he small parcels of ruffs with frills on used to frequent that little hilly bit of ground near the old ashen tree it was very amusing to see em fight very funny to see em dancing round each other like so many bantam cocks. But they didn't hurt one another. It was all show. They didn't even make the feathers fly, and I never knowed them to ever draw blood. Braden altered? I should think so. You know the north wall drain? Well, I often had nets set in it. The water used to be quite fresh, and there was plenty on it, and I caught roach and perch and bream by the mournful, with the butts, or flounders. I was babbing one night near the London boat, and caught an eel about three quarters of a pound in weight, and noticed a lump in it. On skinning it, I turned out a clay pipe with a bit of shank attached. No doubt someone had dropped it, and the eel seized on it, as fish sometimes will see strange things moving in the water. I caught a quarter-pound eel once on a hook, and outside that eel I found a larger one. 
nearly two pounds weight that had been hooked through the fust one and couldn't clear itself there were queer accidents sometimes on braden old chivers parmenter who shot there long afore my time once when rowin along spotted a parcel of mallard comin towards him he up with his great old handgun and pulled at em but the patch only cracked and when the ducks doubled back in their flight one of em striking its wing on the back of another dislocated it and fell into the water whereupon parmenter promptly retrieved it i was originally an oily clothing maker but took the braden when making sou'westers didn't pay so well i'd always been used to a gun many facts related by pestle and one or two other punch gunners already mentioned were corroborated by gibbs as he talked of tides and mudflats and potchard grass and many other things the life of vigilance led by these men has conduced to habits of keen and trustworthy observation sixty-four years ago when he was sixteen fiddler goodens took to braden where he has shot and fished until the last year or two i looked in on the old gentleman who still keeps his two ancient converted rifles hung up in his room to remind him of bygone days the kindly help of friends and the parish allowance are all that stand between him and that goal which all independent old men abominate he was very chatty over the guns he had known one particular weapon had belonged to squire burney it was an old plug breech it came to him goodens and was sold to mr bellin from whom it went to reed a gunner who put a patent breech in it it was then sold to bly who now has it it would kill ducks at one hundred yards as was proven by staking down or anchoring some tame ones at a shooting contest goodens killing two in two shots at the measured distance fifteen godwits at one shot was goodens favourite kill he had seen many thousands in one day years ago on braden fowl were then so plentiful that ones and twos were passed unheeded they wanted bunches and cripples especially among hard fowl were seldom troubled about although it was a constant practice with men to scour the walls and gather the wounded by aid of dogs which centred them among the flint stones ropes astonished him by their chicken-like tameness and he it was who shot the grey seal near rotten eye he shot it in the head the blood flew yards he finally dispatched it with an oar and sold it for thirty shillings both woodcocks and french partridges he had seen drop into braden in foggy weather and two or three times he had retrieved hares that had attempted crossing the ice and fallen into the wakes between 
the author provides the following footnote. In December 1906, a hare was observed in great straits in the soft ooze of Braden. It had evidently been pursued, and mistaking the mud for solid ground, had attempted crossing. It was shot while vainly struggling to extricate itself, its long legs having become fast in the ooze. End of footnote. The hardest old man of Braden he ever knew was Saltfish or Miser Jacks. In the coldest weather, when the boat gathered hundredweights of ice and the punt gun was encased in a mass of ice from the spray and moisture, his great hairy chest would be all exposed. He would always remark that the weather never hurt anyone. His face was the most wrinkled of any man I ever knew. During a continuity of severe frosts, the broads became thickly frozen over, and the many coots which people these lagoons are sadly put to for a means of livelihood. At such times they will take to estuaries and feed on what marine or semi-marine plant life comes in their way. A large flock will come to Braden to feed on the Zostera and offer to local sportsmen an irresistible temptation to harass them. The old gunners eagerly pursued them during the earlier period of their visit, ere they had become rank, for coots were their own favourite game. More than one have told me of the fun they have had in pursuing these birds and the pleasures of the table afterwards. Shorten Page and Gaby Thomas were out one day among the ice and saw a large bunch of coots in a wake. They could not get sufficiently near to them, so, being unprepared in the matter of stockings to put over their boots, they took off their woollen gloves and stuck their boots into them. They got the boat on the ice, little Shorten getting into it to manipulate the gun, while Thomas pushed the boat, sledge-like, within range. They secured twenty-five coots, which they killed, another gunner soon after retrieving eight of the wounded. The average Bradener was certainly resourceful, Rime frosts and fogs may be somewhat interesting to those who ramble along the Braden walls, but neither of these conditions of weather is welcomed by those who would punt thither, for it is by no means easy for even an old Bradener to find his way about. A moment of inattention, a turn of the tide, and his bearings may be lost entirely. I was rowing up one night to my houseboat, which just then was moored to the old ship Agnes in the ship drain, and I had come to within two stakes of the entrance to the drain, navigating the place easily enough by the town lights, when all on a sudden one of the densest fogs I can remember came down, obliterating everything, even the bow of my boat, 
and it was only by a series of random strokes that I found one of the channel stakes, whose number I could not see. Over and over again I tried to find the entrance to the drain, but was continually foiled by fouling the mudflats. So I gave it up for a bad job, and fastened the punt to the next stake I touched, and lay too for the tide to ease and the ebb to come down. I snugged myself down as comfortably as possible on the floor of the punt, and amused myself by thinking of other strange adventures that had befallen me on Braden. I do not remember to have slept, but towards the small hours of the morning I noticed the tide had changed, and a long ripple of phosphorescent water marked the edge of the stream pouring out of the drain into the main channel, almost within an oar's length of my punt. I knew at once that I had been moored at the entrance of the channel all the time. It was now but the matter of a few minutes rowing upstream to the moorhen, into which I tumbled, heartily glad to light a rousing fire and make a comforting supper. Old Pestle once started to go up Braden in a thick fog in the depth of winter, and had only just reached the end of the knoll when his boat touched against that of the late Fielding Harmer. "'Hello, Pestle,' said Harmer. "'Hello, Master,' returned Pestle. "'Where are you bound for?' "'I'm trying to find Duffel's Drain, about a mile away,' replied Harmer. "'How far am I off it?' "'You're within a stun's throw of hum,' said Pestle. Wildfowling under such circumstances as these is extremely dangerous. I know of an instance where a punt gunner was levelling his gun at an object which he thought was a swan, when a ringing sneeze from the said object stayed his trigger finger, but only in the nick of time. This white target turned out to be no other than the late Punt Palmer, who, to make himself inconspicuous against the white snow on the flats, had gone out shooting with a white jumper on. Crowther once shot at a bunch of fowl, on the other side of which, at an equal distance, saltfish Jex was lying. The fowl were badly damaged, and so was Jex, who presently rode up with shots in his scalp that had penetrated a thick fur cap. A certain parson, at one time resident at Borough Castle, had a flock of geese of an extremely roving disposition. They roved about the marshes and flew about Braden with the greatest of assurance, becoming well known to all who frequented the place and provoking many an envious thought. One foggy evening, Perro Pestle cajoled Sam Gibbs, another kindred spirit, into an attempt on this adventurous flock, and together they started out in quest of them. They pulled round the north wall as far as the dicky works without meeting with them, but they meant to have a shot if possible. 
Coming back the same way, Pestle had his suspicions aroused, and, laying at his sights, struck two or three fuses on the stock of the gun, and presently located the cacklers on the stone bank against Lamb's Rond. They hastily fluttered into the water and began swimming towards the flat. Again Pestle lay to his gun, pulling off the oakum which kept the nipple dry, but unfortunately bringing away the cap with it. The geese bunched up and lifted themselves on the wing, but Pero was too quick for them, for he had at once put on another cap and fired into the bunch of them, killing seven. They were gathered up and brought home. Early next morning, Pestle went up Braden again, in quest of some teal that were reported there, which he found and fired into, afterwards rowing over to the south rond to retrieve one or two of the wounded. On the walls he saw James Hur and Jimmy Reese, who had found two of the wounded geese with broken wings. "'That made nine, said Pestle narrating the adventure to me. Higher up the walls, Pestle met a manservant from the parsonage, who inquired if he had seen the parson's geese, telling him there was a rare row up at Borough about the job, for only a few had come home, and they were bleeding and woefully ruffled in plumage. Perrault was by no means unalarmed at this, but said nothing incriminating about himself or Gibbs. On arriving home, he went to the late lawyer W, who was well disposed toward him, and told his story. Look here, said lawyer W, pointing to a bill stating that five pounds reward for information respecting some gunner or gunners maliciously, etc., etc., Pestle begged the bill to show to his chums, and was advised to get Gibbs to go and claim the reward, and he, the lawyer, would do his best for them, and would share the reward equally among them. But the pair of sportsmen thought it best to hold their peace, and as they shared the geese among those Bradeners who were in the secret, no one gave the game away, and there... The matter ended. I kept one for myself, said Pestle, but good night, I couldn't get my teeth into it. In a Braden Punt Shed At the entrance of Braden, on the south side, stands a range of boat and yacht sheds, the latter now frequently in disuse, owing to the falling off of Braden in late years as a favourite yachting resort. The great swing bridge thrown across that narrowest part of Braden, which, even at its best, was always a ticklish part to negotiate on certain winds, has damped altogether the yachtsman's ardour, which had for years been on the wane. Yachting folk today prefer the Waveney and the Bure with the adjacent broads, but several of these sheds are now used by punt gunners, 
who find them exceedingly convenient. They usually boast a little cabin, which opens into the punch shed, fronting which is a slide furnished with rollers for easy exit and hauling. Some of the cabins are characteristically fitted up, and within them, on idle days, when Braden does not invite them, these hardy, honest fellows draw together and discuss things avine, piscine and maritime. One who is interested in the wildlife of our local waters, and who has gained their confidence, may find in their society much entertainment, and listen to many an interesting yarn. I found the boathouse door of number four unfastened, and thin blue smoke curling out of a tall tin chimney. It was a bitter cold January Sunday afternoon in 1907. The tide was running out, and Strike Sharman, with his son William, had been out among the ice in the grey morning, and done execution among the wildfowl. They, and one or two others, were recounting their doings of the morning, and comparing present days with the past. Considerably more than fifty years had Strike known Braden. He had been all his life a ship corker, and lamented that, since the days of iron ships, things had got slow enough in the corking line. Yes, said I, I can remember, as a youngster, the clink-clink of the corking tools in the early morning, before the noise of traffic deadened its music. There is no sound on earth that one can compare with that queer clink-clink-clinking. And I can recall vividly the strange scene of vessels heeled over until their keels came up to the surface, and the rows of blue-jacketed corkers working on them, who were quite a community by themselves. But today it is a rare thing to see a wooden ship undergoing repairs. You've seen strange things on these hulls, I remarked. Aye, said Strike. I've seen great goose barnacles that long, measuring on his arm and mussels and weeds coverin' these ships' bottoms, and fish pullin' at them. I've dipped my arm in art a grey mullet that were feedin' on the green weed and things, but though I've touched em, I never could lay hold of one. I've seen as many as eight mullet in my time, jibed in William, the son, arter we've docked a ship and pumped the dock out, layin' kickin' on the bottom. While they were lighting up pipes again, I could not resist taking stock of the cabin. On shields hanging on the varnished wall were sundry heads, wings, and feet of wildfowl shot by the big gun hanging in slings in the boathouse. I noticed among them members of the Brent Goose, Shoveler, Mallard, and Potchard. Here and there hung a little sporting print, shoulder guns, sou'westers, boots, oily jumpers, and all the paraphernalia of the wildfowlers. I was never a regular bradner, you know, said Strike. 
but have only followed it up on idle days and in hard weather, which meant the same thing. And Sundays, I edged in, smiling, pointing to a little heap of mallard in the corner. Strike's bigger shot, so far as numbers were concerned, was obtained one night when up under the moon. Frost had just set in, and shorebirds were crowding south. He saw a huge gathering of dunlins on the ship lumps and fired his shoulder gun at them. After each shot, the poor bewildered things dropped down again among the dead and wounded. After the third shot, he secured 242 of them, without counting the cripples, which scrambled away. I was up braiding one day, making for the old Agnes, said Sharman. I've corked her in my time, he interjected. There was a body of ice in the channel, and I thought I'd lay beside her for shelter. For she stood high out of the water, and was decked then, as you know. But all on a sudden, the wind chopped to the norad and the westard, and away comes the whole body of ice, moving directly on her. We hurried towards the open channel for fear of getting jammed in. But I see the ice strike her on the bow, tons of it, and come sliding about the decks and right over the stern of her. I never see such an avalanche. If you... Well, if I'd stopped, there'd have been a smash-up, of course. But I was best out of it, said Charman. I remember one night in October, remarked William. The air above head seemed alive with golden plovers, and I heard some cries that tickled my fancy. I couldn't for the life of me make em out. The whistle was shriller than a red shanks. The wind was south-east. I went up early next morning and fell in with the strangers, and the flats were crowded with plovers. Ten tall buds were standing in the water, and I pulled at them, knocking over seven. I found two of them were green shanks, and the other five were spotted shanks. A queer time of the year for them. One of the funniest things I ever see, said Strike, was a couple of kestrels chasing a gull. They dashed at him right and left, and there was he, dodging and screaming, till at last he took to the water and, looking up, opened his beak at him. I could see his little trick. He was out of nabbing hold of him and drowning him. And I see a crow sees a wounded stint, or dunlin, when away comes a big gull at him afore he could make off with it, and made him drop it. The gull gobbled up the poor stint, feathers and all, the Kentish crow standing like a fool a little way off looking at him. I once knocked down a kitty or black-headed gull when gulls was fetching threepence each for hats and crows or rooks as high as eightpence when down dashed a great black-back gull and snatched her out of the water and bore it over to the flats and ate it. 
the shaman's record winter was that of 1890-91. During the long spell of frost, they were enabled to devote their time to wildfowling and made a bag of some 500 wildfowl, or ducks. And somebody got right into the papers about the slaughter. They'd better by half have let us poor men alone, who were glad to earn a shilling by it, and turn their attention to decoy men, who sometimes wring as many necks as that in a day. From one thing to another we rambled on, of birds and boats and men, for there seemed no end to their reminiscences. Did I know Cadger Brown? said Strike. I should like to know who didn't. There was one thing about him. He was always merry, and if he'd got nothing but a crust and a pipe of tobacco, he didn't grumble. But I don't tell you he didn't mind getting a good jint when it come in his way. I and Bond were out early one morning, and see Cadger coming from the marshes over the walls to his old boot, with something tucked under his coat. Got anything? asked Mr. Bond. Only an old goose, said Cadger, grinning. An old goose what was robbing the poor horses of their grass. And he showed it to us. It's a tame one, said Mr. Bond, laughing at the man's audacity and his ready tongue. Never mind, replied Cadger. Hairly all right, all the same for that. And Cadger went off with his goose, no one besides Sharman and Bond ever being the wiser. Of such variety are the yarns of these men of iron nerves and constitutions. They are keenly observant fellows, sturdy of heart as of limb, quick to see a joke, slow to take offence, self-reliant to a degree, and the majority of them are self-respecting, and even their vices, what few they possess, are manly. On the eastern bank of the River Bure, within a stone's throw of Braden, stands a big wooden shed known as the Shrimper's Shelter. On rough, stormy days, these sturdy shrimpers, Bradeners, and other waterside labourers, bronzed hearty fellows with the blood of Vikings coursing through their veins, repair to this shed to gossip and spend around a glowing stove their enforced hours of idleness, glad to repair thither when tides are wrong and pockets are nearly bare, rather than haunt the quayside inns. It occurred some years ago to a good old friend of mine, a Mr. Flaxman, who is connected with the Congregationalists, to approach these fellows and see if their Sundays could not be spent in something more stirring than idleness. "'We didn't want no parsons nor policemen in our shelter,' said one of the crowd, who with his fellows afterwards took solemn counsel, with many deep-drawn spells, at their beloved pipes. "'I say, Mr. Flaxman,' said one of them a few days after, 
I thought you was a coming to talk to us chaps at the shelter last Sunday, but you didn't turn up. This was enough for my friend, who possesses more than a fair share of humour and a deep knowledge of these men's ways, for he was reared among them. And next Sunday he was installed as the little parson, and these simple-hearted fellows, who could never gather courage to go to church, mustered up, some thirty of them, sunburnt and weather-stained in blue guernseys and tan jumpers, with their indispensable pipes in their mouths, with which they soon filled the place with smoke. Tactfully my friend chattered to them, often in the vernacular, without ceremony and restraint, spicing his talk with anecdote and proverb and a simple story from the Bible. To this day, these honest fellows attend the little parson's services, reverent amidst their clouds of smoke in this unconsecrated hut, sometimes punctuating the missioner's address with piquant comments, or breaking his discourse to get back to some previous remark on which they want more light or corroboration. Often these characteristic interjected remarks to everyone else but themselves would be very funny, although uttered with all sincerity. And it is no uncommon thing for the congregation to ask their bishop, after he has concluded his address, to go on and give us another. End of section 6